Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. Hebrews chapter 9. Um, some ways we walk into some strange territory in this chapter. Uh, he talks about the tabernacle and the various aspects of the tabernacle and sacrifice, and uh, frankly, that's not where we live um, in our lives today. We're um, just not as attuned to the meaning of, of, of worship in that, that way, but I want you to work a little bit hard with me, pay a little bit of attention, and come to appreciate what we mean when we say the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. You know, the Scriptures, uh, they do a lot of things, but one of the things the Scriptures do is they tell us things we don't know. Uh, we would never know Christ. We would never know the glory of His majesty. We would never know the wonder of his love. We would never know the magnificence of the cross were it not the Scriptures telling us. And so there, there are things we don't know that we need to know, and the Scriptures tell us these things. The other thing the Scriptures do is they remind us of things that we did know, but we've either forgotten or we have left out of our lives. Uh, it, it's a case where uh, we're really impressed with Christ and we accept Christ and uh, we want to walk with Christ. We receive the salvation, the cleansing, hallelujah, and then we go on with life. And then we just go on the same as ever before, pausing every now and then to say a nice word about Jesus, but by and large, forgetting the wonder of his grace. And so the Scriptures are given to excite us, to remind us of the glory of who Christ is, things we knew, but perhaps we've forgotten. And then the Scriptures also take things that we know and things that we've remembered and show us how they work out in our lives. So as we're looking at the book of Hebrews uh, this morning in chapter 9, that's what's happening. The Scripture is teaching us things we don't know, reminding us of things we did know, and also showing us how that works out in our lives. Now, if you look at the very first verse of chapter 9, well, you know, I, I'm not going to read those verses, and I'll tell you why. It's, it's a list of the, of the things that went into the tabernacle in the wilderness, and frankly, there's a danger that eyes start to glaze over as you try to keep all the details straight of what he's talking about. I, I think it's easier if we sort of visualize it this way. The children of Israel called out of Egypt are now wandering through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And as they're making this journey, God's presence is well known to them. They see it in the cloud. They see it in the pillar of fire by night. They know that God is present and that God is leading them. Now, the problem you have as an Israelite is that you cannot approach this holy, righteous God. To do so is going to be death. To come into relationship and personal conversation with God, you're going to have to take care of a problem called sin, and you really can't do that. And so the vast number of the Israelites wandering through the desert, yes, following God's leadership in the cloud and in the pillar, yet are estranged from God and need a way to come to God. 
Out of his grace, God says this to Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to construct a tabernacle. Moses says, God, what's a tabernacle? He said, well, it's kind of like a big tent. Uh, it's a little bit more elaborate than that, but it's going to be mobile. It's, it's going to be the kind of thing that we can take with us wherever uh, we go. But I want you to build a tabernacle, and this tabernacle is going to be uh, the focal point for my presence in the camp. Everybody knows that I'm not limited to one small tent, but when the people think about coming to God and relating to God, this tabernacle, this, uh, this tent-like structure is going to be the focal point, and they will come here. And not only that, Moses, but I will give them a means of coming here, and in this tabernacle compound, we're going to have sacrifices for sin. Folk, this, this is total grace. This is absolutely the grace of God. He says, I know the people are sinning, but I'm going to give them a way in which they can come to me, their sins taken out of the equation so that they come and they can know me. That is pure grace. And the bringing of the sacrifices is responding to the promises of God that if you come with the sacrifice, he will receive you. And so he says, set up that tabernacle. Now, we have to have in mind what this tabernacle looks like if we're going to understand Hebrews. First of all, it's, it's sort of a rectangular enclosure. There's a, a, a wall, a tent wall uh, around it, and that sets it off from the camp. And so as you're coming to the tabernacle, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to get in. And you notice that there's only one gate. There's only one way into the tabernacle. It's not like this building that we're in right now where we have doors everywhere. I mean, some of you, the first time you came here, you walked in a door, you worshiped, you were impressed, you stayed, obviously. But don't you remember that first Sunday you walked out and said, which door did I come in? You chose the door, you walked out there, you didn't recognize anything. You walked around the building three times trying to find your car. I mean, there were so many ways to get into this building. In the tabernacle in the wilderness, there was just one way to get in. There was just one gate. And you had to enter by that one gate. Is anybody so in love with Jesus that right now they're just thinking, that's right, there's just one way. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the door. He's the gate. He's our access to God. He is the way whereby we come to know the Father. You see, all that's already being promised and proclaimed and prophesied in the tabernacle in the wilderness. So you're coming into the tabernacle because you, you know you need a, a personal fellowship with the Father. So you come in, and there's only one way, and you come in in that one gate. But the first thing you see in front of you is an altar of sacrifice. This is the altar where the, the bulls and the goats and the lambs are sacrificed for the sake of sinners. Why is that the first thing you encounter? Because to enter into the presence of God, the sin problem must be uh, taken care of. You can't just waltz in. God will not abide sin in his presence. And so as an Israelite walking through the wilderness, you know you've sinned. You know you've done those things that are contrary to the will of God. You know that you've violated his plan for your life. And you walk into the tabernacle and you rejoice because there is the sacrifice. There's the altar. 
And you can come and have your sins forgiven. Now, there, there are so many ways to, to uh, count the number of sacrifices that went on. Uh, some have counted 11, some have counted dozens, some say it resolves down into five. Um, however you count it, all you know is, I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven. And so you come into the tent and through the one gate and you come up to the altar of sacrifice and you bring the lamb, you bring the bull, you bring the goat with you and you give him to the priest. And the priest takes this, this sacrificial animal to one side, and there the blood is spilled, the, and the animal is sacrificed. The blood is spilled out and is contained. Now, why do they do that? See, the life is in the blood. And as a sinner, when you come before the Father, you owe him your life. You owe God your life. And when you sin against God, you're saying, God, I'm not going to give you my life. And so to come back to him, you have to give him your life. Now, to do that, you're going to die. You cannot do it. And God in his grace says, I will provide a way that there shall be a substitute, something that will substitute for your life. You owe me your life, I will accept a substitute. Now, he declares that the sacrificial animal, you bring that, the blood is spilled and poured out uh, at the base of the altar and then taken later on into the holy place. But the, um, the animal is taken then and placed upon the altar and consumed. And so the life of the sacrificial animal is a substitute for the life that you owe God but did not give to him. Folks, does anybody love Jesus enough to see him in this sacrifice? You can't even get in. You can't even walk in without the sacrifice of Christ so that you can approach the Father. Now, you've, you've offered the animal. Your sin for that day is forgiven. And you're able to come now into the tabernacle and you come now into worship. But you're not allowed to go any further from that. You just sort of have to stay in the, in the outer reaches. You have to sort of stay in the perimeter and you're not allowed to, uh, to go any further than that. But let's say you're a priest. Let's say you, that you've satisfied the genealogical uh, requirements and, and by descent you are able now to go a little bit farther. And you've been chosen that day to go into the, uh, the holy place and there to sprinkle the blood at the, at the base of the altar of incense. So now that's your privilege. You've sacrificed the, the, the animal. The sins have been forgiven. And now you're walking towards this, this tent-like structure in which are two rooms. But before you can enter there, there's this big bowl of water. It's called a laver. I don't know why. Just call it a big bowl of water. And you have to wash your hands. You have to wash your feet. Because even the priests need to be sanctified, need to be purified. There's a process in coming into the presence of God that not only the sins forgiven, but the life made new and acceptable to him. And so you come up to the basin of water and you wash your hands and you wash your feet. And because you've been selected that day and you have the great privilege of entering into the holy place, you part the, the first curtain and you walk in to the very first room. It's not a very large room. It's not large at all. But you've entered in because your task now is to take the blood of the sacrifice and you're going to sprinkle it before the altar of incense. But as you walk into the room, on your left you see a lampstand. There you see a lampstand, and it supplies the only light to come into the room. It is the only light to illuminate your approach to God. Does anybody love Jesus well enough to know that he is the light of the world? Does anybody love him enough to know that he shines brightly? And so this is the only light you have. 
is the light of this, this lampstand. But on the other side, across the, the, the room from the other side of the lampstand, there's a table, and on the table there are loaves of bread, 12 loaves of bread. It's called showbread. I have no idea why it's called showbread, but it's called showbread. These loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel, represents God's sustaining power and grace as you come and you approach the Father. Does anybody love Jesus to remember that he said, I'm the bread of the world. I'm the bread of life. You, know, that you need to eat of my flesh. So you come in illuminated by the glory of God, the promise of Christ. You, you pass by the table, the promise of sustaining power and life in Christ. And you come up and there's a smaller altar smaller altar, and on that altar is incense. It's a special formula of spices, and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, the requirement was that, that, that those spices could not be used anywhere else in life. You, you were not allowed to use them except in the altar of sacrifice. And those, the smoke of that incense is going up constantly. In the book of Revelation, we're told that the incense goes up from the altar in heaven and the book of Revelation tells us that this smoke going up is the prayers of the saints. God accepting our prayer. God listening to us. So now you've gone into this first room. It has been set aside. It's called the holy place. And there you go in and you have the light and you have the bread. And you go up and there are the prayers ascending into God. By grace, listening to what we bring before him. By grace, listening to the intercession for the people of God. And so the prayer is going up. And you take the blood and you sprinkle it around the altar of incense. But you're only in the holy place. You're only in the first room. Because there you see before you this massive curtain, this massive curtain called a veil. This massive curtain cuts you off from the innermost room. That room is called the holiest place. Now, in Greek, in, in Hebrew grammar, um, the, the way you make a superlative is to say something like, the holy of holies. That's reflective of, of, of Hebrew. Uh, the idea behind it is the most holy place. You are in the holy place, but there's a place holier than holy, and that's where God's presence is to be found. Inside that room, you don't go in there because you're not allowed in there. No one's allowed in there except the high priest, and that's only once a year. But what you know in there is the Ark of the Covenant. That's a box. It's inlaid with gold, and inside that box is the, the rod of Aaron and a pot filled with um, uh, the manna uh, that, uh, that God provided every day and the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And there in the Ark, those, those items reside. And on top of the Ark, there's a golden lid. And on either side of the lid, there's these cherubim, these... these um, uh, terrific angelic creatures on either end and God said you know when you see the lid to the ark think of that as where I am and here's what you call that lid call it the mercy seat the mercy seat there we knowing that God is not confined to any spot on earth but God said, when you think of my presence, think of it there, and it's a mercy seat. But you can't go in. Only the high priest can go in. 
He goes in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And when he goes into this most holy place, the Holy of Holies, he has to take blood with him because he owes God his life, and he can't pay that price. And God supplies a substitute for his sins and for the sins of the people, and he brings in the blood and he sprinkles it at the base of the mercy seat once a year. Now, you're Joe Israelite out here. You got in the gate and you got the sacrifice and you're watching from a distance. You're watching from a distance. Because everything about the temple says that there's got to be more than the blood of bulls and goats. Because the sacrifices are repeated day after day after day after day. The high priest enters into the Holy of Holies, but he has to do it year after year after year after year, constantly repeated, constantly repeated, constantly repeated, because the blood of bulls and goats is not a sufficient sacrifice for the life of a human being. The life of bulls and goats is not enough of a sacrifice, not enough of a substitute. God, by his grace, said, I, I accept that as a teaching proclamation of what I will do. And now in Jesus Christ, all of this is fulfilled. All of this is fulfilled. And so now we walk into the tabernacle. We've been wandering in the wilderness of life. We walk into the tabernacle and we walk through the one gate, Jesus Christ, and there's our sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Now you see why we love the blood of Jesus. Now you see. We walk through and we wash our hands and we're sanctified by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. We walk into the holy place, approaching the presence of the Father. And there's the brightness of Christ and there's the sustaining power of Christ. We come and there's the prayers, God accepting our prayers and, 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 and accepting of the intercession made for us. But you know, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he died on the cross, that curtain, that temple before the Holy of Holies, it was torn, split in two from top to bottom. And all have access now who will come through Jesus Christ, who will come through his shed blood and his broken body. And in Christ Jesus, we walk into the very presence of the Father. Do you see why we love the blood of Jesus? It's not just some antiquated 19th century poetic form. It's not some outdated biblical reference. It is our very life. And so we love the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So I hope that helps you visualize what's going on here. Now we go to Hebrews. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Remember we talked about the fact that the tabernacle on earth was a prophecy and, and structures and, and all the activities in the, in the tabernacle were a way of preaching uh, the promise of Christ. And it was pointing to heavenly realities. And what happens on earth here in, in this context was all talking about what Jesus does for us in an eternal venue. But he says he comes uh, uh, then uh, through the greater, more perfect tent. That is, not a tabernacle that is just temporary, one that's going to wear out, one that has to be repeated. But he comes in that eternal meaning of the tabernacle. He comes, verse 12, he entered once for all. 
He entered once for all. Where did you get the idea that there are some sins Jesus didn't cover with the cross? Where did you get the idea that there are some sins that he cannot forgive? Where did you get the idea that having come and known salvation, that somehow Jesus has to do more before you can serve him? Where did you get the idea that there's anything left to be done? He died for us. He entered into the holy place once and for all, never to be repeated. Not like these Old Testament sacrifices, once for all. Underline that word. Memorize it. Once for all, once for all, once for all. There's a hymn, once for all, isn't it? Once for all, O sinner, believe it. Once and for all, O brother, receive it. I'm older than I look. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Folks, when you brought that lamb, that lamb was a substitute for your life. The blood of that, that sacrificial lamb was in place of the life that you owed God. But let us suppose you said, no, God, I don't want a substitute. I'll pour out my own life. You know what you'd be bringing before God? You'd be bringing an unworthy sacrifice. When the Israelites brought a lamb, a bull, a goat, whatever animal they brought, it had to be spotless. It had to be unblemished. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. You couldn't go into the herd and find the one that was a little you know, off and, and scraggly and scrawny and say, well, I, he's not going to amount to anything I'll offer him. You had to go find the best. You had to find the greatest. You walked into the, into the fold and you picked out the, the, the best, most uh, perfect lamb you could find. And you offered the blood of that lamb as the sacrifice. But here's the deal. That lamb wasn't perfect. No lamb is. That bull, that goat, it wasn't perfect. There was a blemish on it somewhere. You just took the best you could find. But there wasn't a perfect sacrifice for you. And so if you say, well, God, I, instead of bringing the lamb, I'll pour out my own life. Here's what you're bringing before God. You're bringing before God a sacrifice, your life, that is spotted with sin and stained with rebellion against God. Even if you tried to say, God, I'll pour out my own blood for my own sins. You can't do it because you have already stained and distorted and destroyed what God created. That's why we need a perfect sacrifice. That's why we need someone who is incarnate. That's why we need someone who is a human being as we are, living a perfect life. That's why Jesus, the Word of God, was incarnate. He came and he dwelt among us. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. That is why he lived the sinless life, so that he might present a sinless, perfect sacrifice before God. And he alone can be our substitute. He alone is worthy to take the burden of our sins away. And so the scripture says here he came uh, not by the blood of goats and bulls, but by means of his own blood. And he secures an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, we won't talk about that now, but it's, it's just the sacrificial system. Think of it that way. These things sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more the blood of Christ. 
How much more the blood of Christ? Why do you serve in a tabernacle made with hands? Tabernacle made with hands, it's not a tent out there in the wilderness that you go and visit, but that tabernacle made with hands is a philosophical system that our world tells you will lead to life. Why do you serve in that tabernacle? Why do you serve in a tabernacle uh, created by our culture that says here are the values, here are the ethics, here are the morals that are acceptable. Do these and you shall live. Why do you serve that kind of tabernacle made with hands? Why do you serve things that cannot save? When Jesus Christ has given his blood the perfect sacrifice in an eternal everlasting tabernacle, once and for all, never to be repeated, why would you go back to that? See, I remind you, the readers of Hebrews thought, well, yeah, we can go back. You know, I'm I'm in the church. I'm worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I read the Old Testament, but I'm getting persecuted because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm losing my job. You know, I'm getting arrested. I'm getting kicked out of my house. If I go back to the synagogue, they'll leave me alone and I'll still worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I'll still read the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews says, you can't go back. All of that was pointing to Jesus. And there's nothing besides Christ. There's nothing there except the prophecy and the promise of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. How much more the blood of Jesus How much more? Oh, you see, I told you, one sermon per chapter. How much more the blood of Jesus? That's a sermon series right there. But we read on. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Without blemish to God. By the way, did you notice something in this verse? Let me read it again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who is the Son of God, who through the eternal Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of God, offered himself without blemish to God the Father, you see the entirety of the Trinity at work in our salvation. God the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing us to God the Father. Majestic work of God. That's why we sing the doxology every Sunday. It's not just to give us time to get the plates up. I'm bound and determined as long as I fill this pulpit that at some point in this service we will always recognize the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit, another sermon by the way, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our, what's the next word? Conscience. That conscience is the inner person. You see, the old sacrifices could deal with the flesh and the outer person. The old sacrifices could take you to a basin of water where you washed your hands. The old sacrifice could could stand you before the priest where you could be sprinkled on the outside with blood. But Jesus Christ brings us before the Father, and the inner person is changed. The conscience is changed. No longer seared, no longer twisted, no longer distorted and perverted by the things of the world, but a conscience shaped by the Holy Spirit of God according to the righteousness of God that we might glorify God. 
That's what happened. And so he, he brings us, purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know what a privilege it is to serve the living God? And through Jesus Christ, we come to the Father to serve the living God. Now, look, uh, we, we love the blood of Christ. But Jesus is our sacrifice. That's what we mean when we say the blood of Jesus. And Jesus is a sacrifice it, it, unlike any. The animal sacrifices pointed to him, but he is the perfect sacrifice. You see, Jesus is a loving sacrifice for us. You bring your lamb to the, to the altar, this lamb to sacrifice for you. You might love that little lamb. You might even have given that little lamb a name. If you did, shame on you. But that lamb doesn't love you. That lamb doesn't care for you. That lamb doesn't have it in his heart, your well-being and welfare. Jesus Christ loves you. He loves you so much that he gave his life for you. Jesus Christ loves us so much that he left nothing behind and gave everything for us. Jesus Christ is a loving sacrifice. Jesus Christ is a willing sacrifice. The little lamb that you brought for that sacrifice, he didn't volunteer for that. It's not like you went into the flock and said, well, I need somebody to sacrifice, and all the little lambs said, here, here, take me, take me. No! They had no idea what was going on. Jesus Christ is our willing sacrifice. When he saw our sin, like the leper, we cried out, Lord, if you're willing, you can cleanse me. And Jesus said, I am willing. He chose to die for us. It was his, his desire to glorify the Father by giving his life for us. He is our willing sacrifice. Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. He covers our sin perfectly and completely. He covers what we deserve in wrath and judgment. He takes perfectly from us. He dies for us so that we are brought before the Father. And in Christ, and in Christ alone, we know him. He is our perfect sacrifice, and he is our unique sacrifice. Mentioned that word once uh, a little while ago. Once and for all, it's one Greek word. Uh, but once and for all, he died for us. He is our unique sacrifice. We don't need another. Amen. You can't be another. You can't add to his sacrifice any more than you can take away from it. There's no other sacrifice needed at all. He does not need to die again and again and again. He does not need to yield up his life over and over again. But when he died, he died for us once and for all. And he saved us once and for all. And our eternal destiny is set once and for all. And our home is in heaven before the Father's throne once and for all. He is our unique sacrifice. Amen. Why would you go back? Why would you go back to the world? Why would you go back to the tabernacle, go back to the synagogue? Why would you go back to the old way of life? We see the beauty of Christ and the wonder of his blood. And our desire now is to serve 
the living God. Why would you ever go back? That's why we love the blood. Let me uh, give you real quick verses. Um, I promise to talk fast. I usually don't talk fast. Verse 24. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. What are the next three words in the ASV translation? On our behalf. On our behalf. You know, a lot of neat things are happening in heaven. You know, the angels are singing. You know, they're singing all this praise to the one upon the throne and to the Lamb. The four living creatures surrounding the throne giving glory to God. The 24 elders casting. They're, they're just throwing crowns like crazy to glorify the Father. Round the glassy sea. This is spectacular worship going on in heaven. And Jesus walks into the throne of the Father and he says, I'm here on their behalf. I'm here to bring them in with me. I'm here that they might live. Oh, that, that just on our behalf, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Forth. And in heaven, Paul says that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for us on our behalf. So it's also the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Anyway, verse 25, now, was, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. Once for all at the end of the ages. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you see why we love the blood of Jesus? Yeah. Why we love him. Why we love him. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we're blown away. Just blown away by the grace that is ours in Christ. Blown away for what you have done for us, a perfect sacrifice, perfect access to your presence. Father, we're blown away by who you are. And I'm praying now, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would invade the hearts, those who do not know Jesus, that you would open their eyes, that you would change the heart, that you give the conviction of sin, that you bring about the confession of faith, to receive him, to love him, to serve him. Father, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, let your Holy Spirit plant deeply within the heart a love for the blood of Jesus that would change our lives and make us serve the living God. Father, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.